Welcome to the Redeemer Community Church Podcast. The following audio is from Redeemer Community Church, located in Johnson City, Tennessee. We hope it will be encouraging to you as you listen. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Um, My voice has been struggling, and I've had this kind of annoying cough. I'm literally chewing on a cough drop right now, so if you think I have a dip in my mouth, it's not. It's a cough drop. Um, But we're probably going to go a little bit short today, so no one's ever complained about that. Um, But yesterday, I had the the privilege and honor of speaking at a youth conference that Tri-Cities Baptist was hosting called Impact, and um, I just did a little breakout session for for some of the students on discipleship. And, and it was interesting, two things kind of stuck out to me. One is I realized that most of my cultural references um, completely missed. And I was like, man, I'm, I'm officially out of touch now. Um, and, so, and so there's a level of like what I'm, what's relevant for my seven-year-old is not at the youth age. And, um, and what's relevant to our younger crowd here is, is, is still too complex and, and whatnot. But either way, um, the second thing is I, I had a flashback to when I was in student ministry, when I was a youth pastor, and I remembered that it doesn't matter what you're doing when you're working with youth age students in a church environment. You could be studying the book of Revelation, you could be playing dodgeball or never have I ever, you could be debriefing a talk from the camp speaker, it doesn't matter, whatever you're doing, youth will find a way to ask the question, how far is too far? They wanna know in their dating relationships, because those are really serious when you're a teenager, how far is too far? And at the end of the day, that's actually a permission-seeking question. It's, It's a question of saying, where is the boundary or where is the edge and how close am I allowed to skate towards it? Right? And, so, and so you find when you work with youth that a lot of it is, is you feel like you're defining boundaries, encouraging them not to cross over them, and then loving on them when they do. But the truth is, is those permission-seeking questions don't really end with adolescence. Even in our adulthood and for the rest of our Christian lives, we're always going to be wrestling with how far is too far or how much is too much. It's just, it shifts categories, Right, like, like how, much, how much house is too much house? How much attention to my physical image, whether it's time in the gym or, or counting um, the food that I'm eating, how much of that is, is too much um, concentration on image? Or am I allowed to um, watch this television series on this channel or, or whatever it might be? And we wanna know like kind of where are the boundaries that are acceptable for Christians. And, and what we're going to see today is that, is that those boundary questions are actually the wrong types of questions. That, that when we are asking what, what do we have permission to approach the edge to, we're missing the point on what God wants us to do. And, and so what we're going to see in, in today's text, that there, there are basically two camps in this church. So 1 Corinthians is a letter written to a real church, to real people. And in this church, there are two different camps. There, there are the camps of, of basically, I can do anything. Right? These are people who want to live their life without any boundaries. These are people who say, like, I want to skate as close to the edge as possible, but I'm not even sure if the edge actually exists. These are the, I can do anything camp. 
Then there's a second camp, which is, I don't think we can do anything camp. So one is, I can do whatever I want. The other is, I don't think anything is really allowed. These are the people who want to know the boundaries so they can stay as far away from them as possible. And what Paul sees is that there's actually a danger of falling either direction. If you fall into the, I can do whatever I want camp, you run this risk of being morally careless in the way that you live your life. And you can actually live in a way that's not honoring to God and to what God has done for us. But if you fall into the other camp of the, I think everything is off limits, or I don't know if we can do anything that, that's kind of in the gray area camp, if you fall into that side, you run the risk of becoming cold and, and calloused and hard where, where you struggle to receive God's grace and you struggle to extend God's grace. And so how do we live a life where we don't fall to the left or to the right? How do we live a life that's, that's gospel balanced in the way that we approach, let's just call them the morally neutral or the morally gray areas of life? How do we live in a way that's gospel balanced for decisions that the scriptures don't speak directly to, right? And that's what Paul's gonna get at today in chapter 10, picking up in verse 23. And he says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. Notice that there's quotation marks around the all things are lawful. Once again, quotations. All things are lawful, but not all things build up, all right? So, so he's quoting almost verbatim something he's actually already mentioned in chapter six. This is a slogan that's going around the church that is widely popular. Some scholars actually believe that Paul might have popularized it in the first place. And so he's, he's quoting it because in this, in this culture of Corinth, personal freedoms or personal rights were a really big deal. Right? This was a, a young, hip, urban culture where people were really bent on having the freedom to do what they wanted without other people speaking into their lives. It's, it's, it's really familiar to the way that we live. Like, I want to do what I want to do, and I don't want anybody to challenge me on that. I have freedom or I have rights to do my life or to live my life. And, and so that was a big deal here. And so when Paul comes along and says, all things are lawful, this church is saying, yes. Like that, that scratches the itch of what I want to do with my life. And he says, I don't necessarily disagree with that, but we need to clarify some things. While all things are lawful, when he, when he says all things, he's not talking about sinful things. He's not saying anything goes. He's not saying all things is in sinful things. All things is in relation to the stuff that scripture doesn't specifically address. So he's saying like when scripture doesn't specifically speak into it, there is an assumption that it's okay. Right? So let's just, if scripture doesn't specifically address it, he goes, let's just assume it's okay. He goes, but let's clarify that not all things are helpful. Let's clarify that not all things build up. And so this idea of building up, it, it means to help others step closer to Jesus. And he's saying, look, the way that we navigate life, specifically when it comes to stuff that scripture doesn't specifically address, he goes, well, you have to realize that the way that you live and the way that you navigate those decisions has an effect on people outside of yourself. It affects other people and you need to be considerate of that. Verse 24, he says, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. He's saying, look, we've got to have an other's focus. And this is completely counterintuitive to the way that we're wired. 
We're wired culturally to always look to ourselves and to ask, what does this do for me or how does this benefit my life before ever looking outside? And he says, no, no, we need to flip that and we need to have an other's focus. Something that, that's, that I love that Paul wrote in relation to this is in Philippians 2. He says, he looks at the church and he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. You see, when we, when we begin to not look to what we want first, but to consider others first, what we're doing is we're beginning to reflect Christ in the way that we're living our lives, All right? So as he's, as he's giving this church instructions on how do we navigate life when it comes to these morally neutral issues, he goes, here's the guiding principle. We need to think about how it has an effect on those we're around. It's not just about how does this affect you. It's not just about what you are allowed to do. It's not just can I do this, but should I do this? So we always need to have a focus on how is this going to impact the people I'm around? How does this decision impact my kids? How is this going to affect the way that they're growing up? How does this decision impact my coworkers? How does this decision impact my spouse, my parents, my friends, my neighbors? Like you're constantly thinking, how does this impact or influence the people that God has placed me around? All right, so now Paul, in verses 25 through 30, is going to give two kind of rubber meets the road illustrations for this church. So these are examples that they're personally dealing with. He goes, look, I know what you're dealing with in your church. So let's just, let's just talk it out. All right. So verse 25, he says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. All right. And so contextually what's happening here in chapter eight, Paul introduces the issue with this church and the issue they're wrestling with is meat that was at one point in a temple to a false god. So, so just kind of what's happening here is you bring an animal to like the, the temple of Aphrodite or the temple of Zeus, and then you take a portion of that meat and you sacrifice it to that false god. And then you take another portion of that meat and you, you reserve it for cooking it at the temple and feeding people that are present in the worship service. Then you take the other third of that meat and you bring it to the marketplace and sell it. And so virtually all of the meat that you would find in the meat market would have at one point found its way to the temple. And people are saying, are we allowed to eat that meat? Are we allowed to eat this meat knowing that at one point it was a part of some sacrifice? All right, and so, and so Paul already addressed this in chapter eight where he goes, look, like if you're not actually worshiping this false God, if you just purchase meat at the meat market, like you're fine, eat it, it's like you're good, enjoy that. All right, and so their issue here is still, what do we do with that? And he says, look, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. Says, look, like you, you are free to eat this, all right? And so, so I don't know about you, that's probably not our, our issue. Like, are, you, are any of you guys struggling with meat being sacrificed to idols? <laughs> I'm not sure where you're hanging out the rest of the week, but like, I'm, we're probably like that's, that's not my thing. But what are some questions that we might have? Right, what are some things that we might deal with? Okay, can, so here's some that I've, that I've had recently, okay? Can I invest in stock that the company doesn't necessarily adhere to Christian values? Is it, do I need to talk to my financial advisor to make sure that everything that we're investing in is a Christian-based company? Right? 
how do we, how do we rest with that? Or, hey, I work for a company and, and my department is making X product, but another department makes this and I, and I disagree with that morally. Should I be working for this company because I don't agree with what they're doing here? Or, hey, my, my kids, um, their friends are playing this game and I've checked it out. I'm not sure that it's good or bad, but I'm just really not comfortable with my kids being on it. Like, should, is it wrong for them to play this game or not? All right, and so, so we, we have these things where we're looking for just a, a clear yes or no answer to, right? And so for the Corinthians, they're looking for a clear yes or no approach. And, and here's what Paul does. He comes in and he says, look, we need to be careful. We need to be careful not to restrict ourselves from things that God has given us the freedom to enjoy. Because look, there are things in life that are not inherently bad and are not inherently good. And those things are things that are God's creation. And we need to be really careful to not restrict ourselves from things that aren't bad, that are okay to enjoy. So let's not, let's not go and start adding a bunch of rules of do's and don'ts to things that we have the liberty to enjoy. And says, so as far as meat that's sold in the market, he goes, you have the freedom to enjoy that. Be careful on restricting yourself. All right, but in verse 27, he throws, a, he, throws a, um, he throws a wrench into this. He says, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. All right, the, the wrench has not been thrown yet. I jumped the gun on that. All right, this is the second example. The second example is, the first one is, what do we do with meat that we might purchase the meat market? The second example is, what do you do if you go to a friend's house and they serve you dinner? that has been meat that was cooked from the temple, all right? He's like, what do you do if you go to a friend's house? Before we explain that, can I just say that this is something that's really awesome? Look what it says in verse 27 one more time. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner, there is an assumption here that Christians are hanging out with non-Christians and I love it. Like there is an assumption that as Christians, we aren't called to like, hide away in our own little compounds and to protect ourselves from anything that's cultural, right? There's this assumption that we should be engaging with and intentionally hanging out with and doing life with people who might otherwise never shadow the door of the church. He's like, look, when you get invited to an unbeliever's house, he's like, you need to go. Like you should be hanging out with people who aren't Christians, right? People who might influence you in a negative way, like you're supposed to get dinner with them and they might cuss and you're like, what do you do with that? They might light up a cigarette. What do you do with that? Like they might do something that you're like, I'm really uncomfortable at this point. He says, look, when you're doing this, with the assumption being that you should be hanging out with non-Christians, okay? He says, when you do this, if you go to their house and they offer you food to eat, he goes, don't make a big deal about it. He goes, don't make a big deal about it. Look, if they didn't say anything about where this meat came from, he goes, don't make a big deal. Just eat the food and enjoy it. He goes, look, when you're hanging out with non-Christians, you need to find as much common ground as possible. And so if you come in and start adding all of these lists of do's and don'ts that are things that are outside of Scripture that Scripture doesn't specifically speak to, you're just creating more and more walls and barriers between you and them. He goes, find as much common ground as possible. So if you don't need to talk about where the meat came from because that's going to create an unnecessary barrier, don't do it. Just eat the food and enjoy it. 
Sure, you might know where it came from, but there's nothing wrong with enjoying what God made, All right? But then in verse 28, this is where he throws the wrench. He says, but if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informs you and for the sake of conscience. He goes, but if they specify and say, hey, just so you know, this food was sacrificed to Zeus. Hey, just so you know, this food was a sacrifice to Aphrodite. He says, if they're clarifying that for you, they're most likely looking for you to affirm their false belief. And he goes, and if your actions would affirm their belief in a false God, he goes, hold back. He goes, let's not make this super complicated. If they don't say anything about the food, eat it. If they specify that it's been at one point offered to a false God, don't eat it. It's as simple as that. Like, let's not overcomplicate this thing. But the principle here is we need to always be thinking about how our actions can affect the people that we're around. We need to always think, okay, what will my doing, what will that have an effect on this person? If it, if it has no effect because no one's talked about it, enjoy it. If it's gonna affirm something bad, then don't do it. Like just always have an awareness of how this affects others. In verses 29 and 30, he's gonna ask some rhetorical questions. He says, I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? These are two rhetorical questions that are in anticipation of an objection because he's reasoned with them in length to say, look, if God created something, it's okay to enjoy it. And now he's saying, if God created something, but it's affirming their false belief, hold back. And they're saying, wait, wait, wait. I thought you were a man of principle. I thought you were a man of conviction. Are you telling me that you could believe that this meat was something for you to enjoy and then you would change your action depending on the audience? That sounds a little hypocritical. That's kind of the objection he's anticipating here. And he's saying, no, 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 no. He's saying, it's not that my beliefs have changed. It's that I am choosing to restrict my activity in relation to how it would affect this person. So he's anticipating that people are gonna push back and say, it's a little hypocritical to say you believe it's not wrong and then to choose not to do it. You should stand your ground and, and make them believe what you believe by, by, by doing that. And he goes, no, no, no. It's better for me to, to keep my beliefs but to restrict my actions because I know how it's gonna affect them. Like an example of this is, let's say that, that my conviction is that God cares more about what's inside than what's outside. And so for me preaching, I feel perfectly comfortable wearing jeans and a shirt, a, a plaid shirt, okay? Like I feel like God at the end of the day is not worried about my, my attire at this point, okay? But let's say that I've got a friend in, in, in Mississippi who said, Jeff, I'd love for you to come speak at a revival because we still do these like tent revival things and I want you to come down and preach for me. And so their church though has a totally different view of that. They believe that a pastor needs to wear a dark colored suit, nothing too flashy, dark colored suit with a, a white shirt and a solid colored tie. Okay, and you need to have shoes that are shined, but not too shined. And a bit, you need to have this because that's respect for the pulpit and it's wearing, it's wearing your Sunday's best and, and that's what's there. Now, I have my beliefs about God caring more about what's on the inside than the outside. Now I can go there and choose to stick to my guns with my beliefs and preach wearing my jeans and my plaid shirt. But what's gonna happen is that my actions are gonna affect their ability to hear anything that I've said. So what I'm gonna do is if that's my opportunity is I'm gonna go and I'm gonna wear my black suit with my white shirt and my black tie. 
Is it because my beliefs changed? No. It's I'm restricting a freedom I have is a way of setting them up to hear the gospel. So that's all Paul is saying here is like, he's, he's saying, look, we have our convictions and I'm not telling you that you need to change your convictions based off of who you're hanging out with, but the way that you live those out should be affected by your knowledge of how is that going to have an effect on them, specifically when it comes to their hearing the gospel. Right, then in verse 31 through 33, he says, so whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, I do not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. All right, so here's what he does. Wrapping up this section, he gives two guidelines that are meant to revolutionize the church. Okay, he gives two guidelines that are meant to revolutionize the church. Because he knows that as a church, if we begin to apply these to our lives, if we begin to live this out, it's going to change us and then it's going to change the world that we're in. So he says, look, look here's how we need to, to apply. When we're thinking about how we make decisions in regards to the way we're living our life, he gives two guiding principles. The first one is this, whatever we do, we need to think vertically first. We need to think, how does this give God glory? Right, so the first, when we're thinking about decisions in life, should I take this job? Should I not take this job? Should I invest here? Should I not invest here? Should I do this? Should I not do that? He's like, when we're making decisions in life, the first thing we do is we look vertically and say, okay, how does this give God glory? Now, I realize that giving God the glory is kind of a very Christian ease type phrase that people are like, what does that even mean? Has that ever been defined? And so, so let me real quickly just kind of say what, 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 what bringing God glory is. To give God glory means that our hope is to make him look great. It means that, that we're putting God's goodness and kindness on display for the world to see. My favorite definition is this. It's the excellence of God's attributes being seen through our actions. Right? And so the first thing we do is we look vertically and say, okay, how can the excellence of God's attributes be seen through the actions of the way I'm living my life? So the first thing he says is look vertically. And the second thing is to look horizontally, to look at those that we're next to and to ask this, will this help others have an easier path towards knowing and discovering Jesus? Will this help the people I'm around have an easier path to knowing and discovering Jesus? Look, I just wanna, this is probably f maybe 5% of people that would come to Redeemer. But I, wanted, I, I just wanna, if that's, that you need to be spoken to, so take this with a little bit of harshness, but know that it's coming from a position of love, okay? The Christian's attitude should never be, I'm free to do this, and if they stumble, that's on them, not me. Okay, I've, I've seen that attitude here. And I just want to say that's not okay. Okay, the Christian's attitude should never be, I can do what I want. And if they stumble, that's not on me, that's on them. That's, 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 the, that's the antithesis to what Paul is calling us to. Saying that we need to do our best to always have this cultural awareness. So when he talks about like, look, whether I'm, with the, whether I'm with the Jews or the Greeks or the church, he says, look, wherever you're at, 
You need to, to know like what makes other people tick. Like what are their likes? What are their dislikes? What's their background? Like why are they the way they are? Where are they coming from? What, what's important to them? He goes like have this cultural awareness of the people you're around and then be the type of person who meets them where they are. Be the type of person who says, I want to know where you're coming from and I want to I set aside my cultural barriers or my cultural preferences and I want to meet you where you are in life. He says, that's the type of people that we want to be. If we're going to help people know Jesus, we have to be willing to remove the barriers of our cultural preferences. Then in verse one of chapter 11, he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. He goes, look, I live my life this way because I wanna be like Jesus. And I challenge you to do the same. So if there's one thing that we need to get from this text, Paul has spent three chapters on this topic of this kind of idea of like, just because you could, does that mean you should? Or this, this idea of as Christians, we should be willing to relinquish our rights if it helps other people know the beauty of Christ. And here's what I want us to see today is that God wants our lives to be bridges that help others connect to him. God wants our lives to be these bridges where our presence is helping others connect their life to his life. Like that's an incredible privilege that we've been called to, right? And this is why he's so concerned about the way we navigate our decisions. Because if we do whatever we want, like we could live morally careless in a way that dishonors God. If we, if we are too restrictive, we can very easily become cold and hard and, and just unable to experience and extend God's graces. Look, we need to be, we need to be gospel shaped. You see the motivation of the permission seeking question right? The motivation of how far is too far, right? The motivation for one person is like the high school kid who wants to skate as close to the edge as possible. It's the thrill of knowing the edge and that's their motivation. But another person might have a totally different motivation. For the other person, they want to know the boundaries because they're motivated by the safety of being in the middle and being able to judge those who have stepped over the boundaries, and he says, look, you don't need to be motivated by either of those things. You need to be motivated by the thrill of the gospel, of knowing that people are coming to saving faith in Christ by the way that you're living your life in the world. I've called you into the world to be a bridge to help others connect their lives to Jesus. As I was preparing this week's text, this message, I, I couldn't help but to go, this isn't a powerful sermon. Like, I was like, I was like this, there's nothing about this sermon that people are like, I'm gonna go email that to my friend to listen to. Like, there's nothing powerful about this. There's no incredible example that grabs hold of you. Yet, these are powerful principles that can radically shape the life of our church. And so I was trying to think, how do I tell this in a way that just makes this go, I want that. And at the end of the day, I'm going, I don't know what to do off to the side of saying like, these principles are meant to guide our lives. And if we will take it seriously without having to have our heartstrings tugged on and say like, I wanna live like this, God will use it to change us and to change the world we're in. One of the ways I saw this lived out 
um, at the church I was at in San Antonio, Texas, um, back in my youth ministry days when I was hip to culture, um, the church was declining, right? And so 80% of churches in America are plateaued or declining. And so this, I'm just gonna wrap up with this thought here. Um, so the church was trying to figure out how do we, how do we turn this ship around? And so the, the immediate thing was we need a contemporary service. And so it's like, man, if we just had contemporary music, people would come in by the hundreds. Like, let's, let's start a contemporary service. And so then you have the question of, you have two groups of people with an 8.30 service and an 11 o'clock service with a Sunday school in the middle and people saying like, well, who gets the, who gets the prime spot? Because 11 is the spot everybody wants. And so how do you get the prime, who gets that? Because we will budge and allow for a contemporary service if it's at 8.30. But if it's at 11, I'm voting no. And so the compromise was, okay, we'll, we'll do a contemporary service, but they have to have the non-prime slot. They get 8.30. And then traditional keeps the 11 o'clock prime time slot. Okay, so, so that happens. And then it doesn't fix the church. The church is like kind of steadily declining. There's all types of drama I'm not gonna get into. But the church is kind of steadily declining. So then a, a new pastor comes in and he goes, we have to flip the services. He goes, look, if the purpose of the contemporary service was to scratch an itch of those in our church, then we did it for the wrong reasons. But if the purpose was to reach people who don't come to church, he goes, we've got to flip that. We've got to flip those service times. And so he fought for it, but then people were up in arms. Like, if you do that, we're leaving the church. If you're doing that, I'm not going to give my tithe anymore. If you do that, we're out. And then there was a guy named Ben Jones. And Ben Jones was, was 67 you know, at the time, and, and so he's, he's now in his 70s. But Ben Jones, um, just, a, just a, a blue-collar hard worker who ran a hardware store his whole life and served the church relentlessly, loved the traditional service, sang in the men's choir, sang in like the all-state Baptist choir, like for the rest of the state. Like he was, he was about the piped organ and suit, right? And he stood up. And, he goes, and this is in front of a whole church where it's, where it's division. And he stands up and he goes, every morning I watch moms come in at 8.45, 8.50, 9 o'clock, hauling their kids to children's service. They get their kids checked in. It takes them 15 minutes. They come in here about 9.15, flustered, and you can tell they're not even, they're disheveled. And he goes, and then by 9.30, the service is wrapping up. And he goes, if you're telling me that we can flip services and give that mom a little bit more time to get her kids here so she can hear the gospel, he goes, I'll do it every time. I'll do it every time if it means more people knowing Jesus. And he stood that ground. And I remember sitting there thinking, how amazing is this man's heart? That he would say, look, it's not about my preferences. I'm willing to lay those to the side if it serves someone else to help them know Jesus, right? And so you're, you might not always be on the side where you get what you want, but we need to always be on the side of saying, look, I will step to the side if it means others knowing Christ. And that's all that Paul's asking us to do here. He's saying, look, when Jesus grabs hold of your heart, live your life in such a way where you're constantly thinking, how will this glorify God by helping others know Jesus, right? And the way that we do that, the way that we find that motivation is by looking to the cross. Because at the cross, 
Jesus set aside his well-being for the sake of us as he gave the supreme sacrifice of offering up his life that we might be saved. And the more that truth grabs hold of us, the less tightly our cultural preferences will hold on to our lives. And we'll have the freedom to set them to the side so that others can know the love of Christ as we do. God, I thank you for your word. And I thank you for Paul's example for us to be imitators of him as, as he lives out these principles. And God, there's, there's nothing radical to it. It's, it's just simple. As we make decisions, we need to, to filter it through the lens of, of how does this help people see your excellence and how does this help people know you? God, let us be a people that, that would take that simple advice and drill it deep into our hearts that we would live it out so that we could be a generation of Ben Joneses, um, a generation of people that can look to another generation and say, be imitators of me as I am an imitator of Christ. In your name we pray, amen. Well, we, we wanna respond to the news of Christ's costly grace. If you are a Christian, I wanna invite you to the table where we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Every week we remember that Jesus gave his life for us and spilt his blood that we might be with God for all eternity. That's something that we cannot do on our own. It was something that he had to do on our behalf. And that love and that grace is meant to motivate us with the thrill of the gospel. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I wanna invite you to Christ for the first time, to know that without him, you are hopeless, and there is a gap that you can never bridge. But Jesus came to rescue you. But wherever you are, this is a time to respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. Thank you so much for listening to this audio from Redeemer Community Church in Johnson City, Tennessee. You can connect with us and find out more information at RedeemerCommunity.com.